most of us can remember um, from our high school speech classes or debate clubs, selecting an issue and, and then being assigned to argue the for or against positions. Perennial favorites, even since I was in school a very long time ago, included and still frankly include abortion, gun control, legalized marijuana, and capital punishment. Most of us can remember the arguments for each of those. A capital punishment refers to the government-sanctioned death of people who commit certain crimes called capital crimes like murder, genocide, whatever. When I was in school, the arguments revolved around the morality of the action, but today the, the argument seems to be the humaneness of the action, the humaneness. That is, is it possible to put someone to death humanely? Which is why, interestingly, uh, the guillotine was invented. It, it, it was thought to be more humane since death was instantaneous. In our country, execution has ranged from hanging to firing squad uh, to electrocution to the gas chamber uh, to today lethal injection. Uh, uh, again, along that continuum, hoping to become more humane. Now, I'm not arguing the merits or demerits, I'm not doing a debate here this morning of the practice, simply observing the issue. What I find interesting is when we inflict the death penalty, we want to do so as humanely and painlessly as possible. You see, last week we began talking about the capital punishment, the death of Jesus Christ. We looked closely at the kind of capital punishment used, the agonizing, excruciating pain associated with crucifixion. In fact, we saw that that was the very reason the Romans used crucifixion to inflict as much pain as possible before the release of death came. As a result, it was against the law, actually, for Roman citizens to be crucified. It was normally reserved for the lowest classes of people and the worst of criminals. And Jesus endured that kind of death, and so we explored the physical suffering of the cross last week. But, but, but it wasn't just the pain. We also looked at the shame of the cross. The, the shame pri primarily came through man's commentary on the crucifixion of Christ. We saw specifically four groups of people give their comments, their commentary on the cross of Christ. The, the, the Romans began the whole thing by, well, scourging Jesus. Then they mocked him as the supposed king of the Jews and giving him the various accoutrements of royalty, a, a robe, a crown, a, a scepter. Of course, the robe was nothing more than a faded soldier's tunic, the crown, a, a brutal crown of thorns, the royal scepter, nothing more than a reed. They continued to display their blasphemous contempt for Jesus, bowing before him, proclaiming, hail, king of the Jews, and rising to spit on him and hit him on the head with the reed, driving the thorns deeper into his brow. Of course, the irony was Jesus really was the king of the Jews. Well, more than that, he was the king of kings. They had mocked and abused their own king and just didn't know it. They continued their mockery by giving him bitter wine to drink, garnering, I'm sure, a cheap laugh, stripping and nailing him 
to a cross. They completed their, their abuse by gambling for his clothing. Second group of people to give their commentary on the cross were those passing by. Crucifixion, you'll remember, was used both as an instrument of cruel, uh, inhumane, brutal execution, as well as an example to instill fear in the masses. So typically crosses were erected on thoroughfares so everyone could see. The city of Jerusalem was teeming with people for Passover week. There would have been many who passed by that particular day, aware of, of Jesus' claim to to be a king, many hurled their abuse at him, wagging their heads in contempt and disgust. Ah, they said, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. The irony was the temple was being destroyed before their very eyes, and and it would be raised again in three days. And the ultimate irony was he stayed on the cross. He chose not to save himself but to save others, giving his life as a ransom for many. The third group of people to give their thoughts on the cross was the Sanhedrin, the, the chief priests, the scribes, the, the elders. They all, they all made a point to visit Jesus that particular Friday. They, they didn't even have the decency to address him directly. Uh, as he hung in cruel agony, they simply mocked, speaking loudly enough for Jesus to hear as they spoke uh, to one another. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this, this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from, uh, from the cross and we will see and believe. Interesting words. The irony was he did save others through his ministry, uh, healing, casting out demons, raising the dead. And again, he could have saved himself, but he was in the process, you see, of providing eternal salvation for those who would see and believe in him, not because he came down from the cross, but because he stayed. The final group to lend commentary on the cross was the two who were crucified with him. They insulted Jesus with the same words, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. The irony is he was the Christ, and he did save one of them that day, saying, today you will be with me in paradise. If you only listened to the commentary of those groups of people gathered around the cross that, la- that first Good Friday, you would not have been impressed. You would have been tempted to dismiss Jesus of Nazareth as, yeah, as yet another fraud, another would-be revolutionary, another would-be Christ whose life and dreams ended in ignominy and shame while his followers, all 11 of them, fled. You too would have walked away shaking your head likely in contempt and disbelief. Fortunately, these were not the only commentaries on the cross that particular day. There were other statements which, which exalted the event and pointed clearly to the effects of the cross. We read about it in our text this morning, Mark chapter 15, as we arrive at the death of Christ, beginning reading in verse 33. When the sixth hour came... Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and, and, gave, it, and, and, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
and the veil of the temple was torn from, from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Last week, we saw what people thought of the cross. Today, in a sense, we see what God thought of the cross. We arrived this morning in the next three weeks at the end of our two-year journey. Last week, we saw him nailed to a cross. This week, we will see him die. Next week, we will see him buried the week after gloriously resurrected. Last week, we looked at the, the pain and the shame of the cross to include this commentary of those who put him to, to death. This week, we'll see the glory of the cross as we look at the divine commentary on the event. Our outline will go like this. We'll see the miracle of darkness, the, the cries of Christ, the, the miracle of the veil, and then the cry of the centurion. The first divine statement on the cross came through this supernatural darkness. When the earth, uh, or excuse me, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Uh, that is, it was dark from about noon till three in the afternoon. Now, as Michael suggested, we often think of the miracles that accompanied the, the birth of Jesus, but we don't often think of the, of the miracles that accompanied His death. When Jesus was Born, there was a supernatural light that shone around the shepherds in the, in the field, a magnificent display of the glory of God. Later, a brilliant star would lead the Magi to the place where Jesus lay. He was, after all, the light of the world, but here there was no, not light, but just darkness as the light of the world was snuffed out, put to death. You remember Mark said that Jesus was crucified around 9 in the morning, meaning He was on the cross for about six hours. As we come to the text today, He's already been on the cross for three hours. About noon, darkness covered the land, literally the earth. Lots of discussion about that, meaningless to me. Various attempts have been made to explain the darkness. Some have suggested it was an eclipse. Two big problems with that. First, Passover happens at a full moon, and there can't be an eclipse during the full moon. And, and second, an eclipse doesn't last for three hours. Others have suggested it was a massive sandstorm, but there's no mention of that in the text. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, simply state that darkness covered the land. It was obviously a supernatural event. But what was it meant, instead of trying to explain it away, what was it meant to convey? Many suggest it was a symbol of divine displeasure, as when darkness covered the land in the ninth plague in Egypt. As such, it was seen as the continued judgment of God against Israel for their rejection of their own Messiah. And later, the tearing of the curtain will indicate the same thing. That is, God is beginning, even at the cross, to bring judgment on Israel and its temple, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. All of that is, frankly, possible, even likely. But I believe further it was during those hours of darkness that the Son of God, the very Son of God, took the sin of the world upon Himself. Paul said, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Think, think of that. The pure, sinless light of the world became, became sin, darkness 
for us. And creation displayed it visibly. Peter said he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Galatians 3 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse. Jesus became a curse for us, for his written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The wrath of God against sin was poured out in judgment on his son. The judgment, this darkness displayed both tragedy and the extreme suffering of Christ and judgment against the sin of the world. It's also been suggested that the darkness veiled the unspeakable anguish of the Son of God while he was bearing the punishment for our sins. The blackness spoke of our evil sin and the high, enormous price to purchase our redemption. But something else happened during that darkness, which brings us to the cries of Christ in verses 34 to 37. Most of you are aware that Jesus actually said seven things from the cross. We call them the seven sayings of the cross. Three of them actually took place before this darkness came. As they first crucified him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That they're ignorant. Later, Paul would say, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know what they were doing. Christ prayed for their forgiveness even as they drove the nails into his hands and to his feet and raised him to be crucified. Later, he said to the beloved disciple, we assume is John, and his mother Mary, as they were standing at the cross, woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. By those statements, while he's hanging on the cross, he was entrusting the future care of his mother to this beloved disciple. Still later, he said to the repentant insurrectionist who was crucified with him, truly, I I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was at this point that Luke tells us that darkness descended on the land. And for three hours, there seems to have been relative silence. See it, as Jesus bore the sin of the world. But Jesus himself broke the silence with a loud cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. The words are Aramaic, and Mark provides the translation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. The bystanders thought he was crying out for Elijah to come help him. You see, in 2 Kings chapter 2, we find that Elijah never really died. He was taken up to heaven in, in a whirlwind. By this time, a legend had, had arisen. Elijah would come to the aid of, of the righteous who were suffering unjustly. Don't miss that. He would come to the aid for the righteous who were suffering unjustly. So while one The bystander offered Jesus some sour wine. That's just cheap wine to drink. The rest of them said, well, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. In other words, let's see if he really is who he claims to be, if he really is righteous and suffering unjustly. I find that amazing. Even though the supernatural, even through the supernatural darkness surrounding them, they held on to their Hardened unbelief and mockery. But what was this cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was bearing the sin of the world. He had become sin. 
He had he'd become a curse for us. Couple those truths with Habakkuk 1, which says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Most feel, and I frankly agree, that while Jesus became sin, bearing our sin, He was abandoned by the Father. Let that sink in. God the Father, as it were, turned His back on His own Son. There was a separation in the Trinity never experienced before, never to be experienced again. This is the only time Jesus does not address God as Father, but simply, my God. It expresses, to some degree, the depth of the separation that Jesus felt. How did this separation take place? What exactly does it mean? I don't know. It is a divine mystery. In this secret of divine sovereignty in ways I cannot understand, God the Son was separated from God the Father for this brief time while the wrath of God was poured out on our sin. God in some way forsook His Son, Jesus, who became our substitute, the sin-bearer. And again, we come face to face with the horror of sin and the cost, the enormous price of our salvation. One author said it this way, rejected and scorned by Israel, sacrificed as a political pawn by Rome, denied and abandoned by his own followers, Jesus is wholly forsaken and exposed to the horror of humanity's sin. Its horror is so total that in his dying breath, he senses his separation from God. The physical pain of the cross was great. The spiritual pain of the cross was infinite. Can I suggest another thought? When we think of the cross, specifically this cry of dereliction, it is called, this cry on the cross, I've had this mental image of Jesus on earth kind of doing all the work. He's bearing the sin of the world and up in heaven a long way away. The Father is watching maybe with arms folded. And when the going gets tough, the Father turns his back on Jesus. Can I suggest that while we hear the words of Christ on the cross and we hear his agony, God the Father, can I suggest, experience the same kind of pain? Remember, we are talking about the Trinity. They are one. We're not talking about three gods, but one. They had forever enjoyed fellowship and relationship. But now, even if for just a moment, they experienced the separation We should not see the Father as distant with arms folded back to His Son. We should see Him as painfully aware and experiencing the same grief as His own Son. And I don't even know what to do with the Holy Spirit in the midst of all of that. I believe that there was great grief and suffering on the part of the Trinity, greater perhaps than had ever been experienced before when God Himself purchased our redemption. Of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, Mark only records this one, but in verse 37, he says there was another. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus said three more things. At one point in John, he said, I am thirsty. Perhaps it was right after verse 35 in our text, right after he cried out to God, because Mark tells us that someone uh, ran to get him sour wine to drink. Perhaps I'm thirsty. 
There were two other sayings. Either one or both could be the one to which Mark here refers. John tells us after drinking the sour wine, he cried out, it is finished, meaning the work of redemption, costly as it was, the bearing of the sins of humanity was completed. And so Luke tells us that Jesus then said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he bowed his head, Matthew says, and yielded up his spirit, meaning he died. Mark says he expired. It all comes to this. We arrive at the death of Christ. Think about that. We understand the wages of sin is death. We also know that Jesus never sinned. But in bearing our sin, he incurred the penalty of our sin and died. Notice, even in recording his death, Matthew and Luke indicate it was a voluntary act on Jesus' part. He yielded up his spirit. God in the flesh died willingly for us. No one took his life. He laid it down voluntarily. He gave his life, you see, a ransom for many. Which brings us to another significant miracle that happened at the death of Christ. There were several, but Mark records just one more. It's found in verse 38. As many of you know that the temple in Jerusalem was the most holy of all sites. Even today, Orthodox Jews continue to, to, to pray at the only re- remaining remnant of the temple. It's called the Wailing Wall. There were, when the temple was built, there were a series of courts within the temple complex, progressing from the furthest out, the court of the Gentiles, through the court of women, through the court of Israel, which was only for Jewish men, through the court of the priests, and then all that before you even got to the temple proper itself. Within the temple, you came first to the holy place, which contained the table of showbread and the, and the lampstand. Beyond that was the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant stood. The Ark was a golden box within which resided the law of Moses on tablets of stone. The lid was uh, to the box was called the mercy seat. On the lid were two cherubim. And, and above the mercy seat, between the cherubim, it was said that God's presence dwelt. But you couldn't get there. Yeah, certainly God was omnipresent. But there was a sense in which he dwelt with his people, the people of Israel, in a special way, within the Holy of Holies. Now, this most holy place was off limits to everyone. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood from a sacrifice on the mercy seat. It was the Day of Atonement when the sprinkling of blood atoned for the sins committed. Think of it. Blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, this blood forming a barrier between the law below that had been broken and God above. But know this. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They would simply roll sin forward another year, another year, another year until they were finally rolled onto Christ who died once for all. Listen to these verses in Hebrews chapter 7. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all 
when he offered up himself. Hebrews chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Before this, you have to understand the whole setup of the, of the temple spoke of separation. You can't get to God. He is separate. He is within the Holy of Holies. You are on the outside looking in, and as Gentiles, you were the furthest out. There is very limited access, and frankly, you don't have it. And this is the way God designed it. Under the old covenant, we needed priests to intercede for us, and they did it imperfectly because they themselves were sinners. Again, the setup screamed, no access you can't get to God. You can't come this way. The veil of the temple was a huge curtain that hung between the, between the holy place and the most holy place. Remember, only the priests could enter into the, the, the court of priests, and only a few priests on their assigned days of work could enter the holy place, but only the high priest could once a year enter the most holy place where God actually was. But the moment Jesus died, the veil of the temple was ripped in two, from top 60 feet up to bottom, meaning completely from heaven to earth. There would have been a gasp. Oh, the people, they couldn't see it. They certainly heard about it. And the priests serving in the holy place got a glimpse of the most holy, holy place that they had never seen before. Which is why, frankly, I think that later in the book of Acts, many priests became obedient to the faith because they understood the significance. What does this all communicate? So very much. With this death of Christ, the old covenant with all of its regulations, its prescribed worship, its prescribed ways to approach God was done away with. No longer did the high priest need to enter the holy place to make atonement for sin because the high priest had entered to make atonement and it only needed to be done once. And, 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 and now the way to God had been opened for us, the veil torn in two, there is access not only for the high priest but for everyone who believes. And there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And as a result, we have all become our own believer priest. You can actually approach God on your own. Do you understand the significance of that, you could not do that under the provisions of the old covenant. The truth is you don't need me, you don't need anyone else except Jesus. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, don't miss those words, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from, evil, uh, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see? Do you see? We can actually enter into the very presence of God made possible by the death of His own Son. The veil separating us from God, which shouted, no access, no entry, you don't belong here, has been destroyed. Another interesting thought. The word torn there in verse 38 is used one other time in Mark. It's in chapter 1. 
At the baptism of Jesus, when the heavens were opened, actually split apart, actually same word, torn. And the voice of the Father was heard from heaven as it's opened, says, this is my beloved Son. Now the curtain is torn and we have access to heaven. And this time, it's not the Father that says it, it is a centurion that says, this is God's Son. Think about it with me. Jesus, the light of the world, embraced darkness, the darkness of our sin, so that we could embrace and be made light. Ephesians 5, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You were dark. He was light, we were darkness. He embraced our darkness so we could embrace his light. Jesus from the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Signifying the separation from the Father that he endured on the cross. He embraced separation so that we could be brought near. Ephesians 2 says it this way, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. By the way, this is talking to Gentiles, that's you, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near (laughs) by the blood of Christ. He embraced separation so that we could be embraced. Further, Jesus embraced death so that we could embrace life. John chapter 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Last week, you see, we talked about the pain and brutality and shame of the cross. We we looked at the actual event and saw men's wicked commentary. This week, we looked at the glory of the cross, God's glorious commentary on the cross, the results of it, which brings us to our last point and our conclusion, the cry of the centurion in verse 39. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, that is Jesus, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is an amazing declaration. This is the centurion, the guy that was in responsible for for the other three soldiers, the four of them crucified Christ. When he saw God's commentary on the cross, he had the only reasonable response, truly. This was the Son of God. Lots of discussion as to whether he was actually confessing faith in Jesus. That is frankly beside the point. The point is once you understand the facts, uh, who Jesus was, And that it was your sin which crucified Jesus. We are just as guilty as the one who drove the nails like the centurion. Once you know the facts, it can only cause you to fall to your face and say, Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. An amazing declaration. It is the point of Mark's gospel. Mark began his book with this title, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then in chapter 1, God himself declared Jesus to be the beloved Son at his baptism. He said it again at the transfiguration. Demons had declared it, uh, this divine sonship through, through the book, starting in chapter 1. Jesus himself declared it in chapter 14 when questioned by Caiaphas. You remember that? He asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? To which Jesus responded, I am. But here, here in chapter 15, this centurion was the first human to declare the divine sonship of Jesus. Incredible. 
a Gentile soldier who had overseen the crucifixion. You see, not only had the way been cleared for access to the, to the Father for Jews, but also for Gentiles, for all who would believe. Here's my question. Have you said what the centurion said? Have you fallen on your knees and confessed Jesus to be the Son of God? Have you confessed your sin that drove the nails? Have you, even, have you ever asked to be brought out of darkness into His marvelous, marvelous light? Ha, have you ever realized that you were separated from God, that there was something missing in your life? And have you ever asked to be brought near, to be given life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? That can only happen through the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Father, indeed, even as Michael reminded us, we've entered a time of retail, Black Friday, lots of spending, lots of external happiness brought on by stuff, and yet we remember that the first Good Friday was truly the, the first Black Friday, but then good for us. Because in the death of our Christ, He bore our sins in His body. And that by seeing and believing, by faith, we can receive Jesus who will remove our sins far as the east is from the west, bury them into the depths of, of the sea. We can be born again. My, my prayer, I understand that most in this room probably know Jesus. But my prayer is that everyone would, right now, that they would confess Jesus as Lord of their lives. What else do we have? We thank you, Lord, in Christ's name.